0: I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I poured it out and one dropped off But I'm, I'm still seeking to i still seeking
1: Oh, and welcome to another deliciously moist episode of Seeking Tumnus The podcast where we soak up the goodness of today's young adult fiction On alternate episodes, we trawled through the swamp of our past And fish out the things we enjoyed when we were young My name is Laurie, and I'm joined by my fellow hosts The bright, the
0: bold, the cheesy, Patrick Moon I don't know about cheesy... Or bold, or necessarily particularly bright. Well, you're not very moon-like, then, are you? Well, no, that's that's true.
1: <laughs> the custard to our Christmas pudding, Keith Rowe. Hello. And the well-dressed
0: pest with serious zest. <laughs> Breed.
2: Pest. Pest. I like
0: that what one, but well-dressed. Why do you always focus on the <laughs> negative things, Bree? <laughs> it was a compliment. Backhanded. we've all gotten to know you by now, so
1: (laughs) strive for accuracy, if nothing else. Mm. This episode, Patrick Moon has made a wonderful choice of author in Neil Gaiman. In 2013, he released The Ocean at the End of the Lane, and with Patrick steering the ship, we navigate its waters for you. Before we go on, I should, of course, warn you that we've assumed that you've read The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which we'll refer to as... The ocean or just ocean? What do you prefer? The ocean at the end of the lane? No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And all its sunken treasures will be on display. So, spoilers abound. If you've not dipped in yourself, pause and we'll see you soon. Ladies and gents, if you're that way inclined, prepare yourself for a reading of page one or so of the book By Patrick Moon
2: Oh, these are the best ones
0: Okay, I'll read, I think maybe the prologues, like half a page And then the first page of the actual book It was only a duck pond out at the back of the farm It wasn't very big Letty Hempstock said it was an ocean, but I knew that was silly She said they'd come here across the ocean from the old country Her mother said that Letty didn't remember properly And it was a long time ago And anyway, the old country had sunk Old Mrs Hempstock, Letty's grandmother, said they were both wrong and that the place that had sunk wasn't the really old country. She said she could remember the really old country. She said the really old country had blown up. Prologue I wore a black suit and a white shirt, a black tie and black shoes, all polished and shiny, clothes that normally would make me feel uncomfortable as if I were in a stolen uniform or pretending to be an adult. Today they gave me comfort of a kind. I was wearing the right clothes for a hard day. I had done my duty in the morning, spoken the words I was meant to speak, and I meant them as I spoke them. And then, when the service was done, I got in my car and I drove, randomly, without a plan. With an hour or so to kill before I met more people I had not seen for years, and shook more hands, and drank too many cups of tea from the best china. I drove along winding Sussex country roads I only half remembered Until I found myself headed towards the town centre So I turned, randomly, down another road And took a left and a right It was only then that I realised where I was going Where I'd been going all along And I grimaced at my own foolishness That's the start of the book What do you guys think of it? Maybe brie.
2: I was so excited to read this. I was immediately drawn in wanting to know more about this guy's, this unnamed guy's childhood, which he's clearly being drawn back to remembering. I also was curious to know what the funeral was about, what's going on there, who's it for, how's it all connected. Couldn't wait to read more. What about you, Keith?
3: I didn't even need page one to be interested in this. It was the name on the front of the book that had me licking my lips in anticipation and I like the prologue a lot. In fact, I think you can go back and reread the prologue as you go through the book and try to reinterpret it. And the page one, as you say, with the funeral, with this unnamed character that we follow through, it's intriguing. And even reading it or hearing it back again, there's parts you pick up that you didn't pick up through the first read. The pretending to be
1: an adult resonates with me. So, yeah, I'm interested very much. Laurie? I'd forgotten about that first little part that talks about the ocean. When I was thinking about what I would say about page one, I I was thinking only about those first few pages about the funeral and him driving around. And I I was going to say, Neil Gaiman doesn't need your shiny page one baubles. (laughs) Um, I didn't really think, for me, it didn't really puff up the sails too much. But by the end of the chapter, which is only really a couple of pages away from where we stopped... The mystery, the magic and the tension really starts to build in a subtle and compelling way, I guess And I think it's the kind of style and master craftsmanship that Neil Gaiman really excels at So, yeah, that first couple of paragraphs about the funeral, I didn't really care so much But by the end of the chapter, I was really, really into
0: it Patrick I really liked the start of this book There's something about those introductions where you hark back to the essence of childhood And something that is maybe missing from your life as an adult And it's something that I've thought about at times throughout my own life And that really resonated in this book from the beginning and throughout the novel Which I'll get into more, I suppose So there's a huge investment there for me Why don't we have a bit of a summary of what it's all about? Keith? Sure thing So I'll
3: have a few quick disclaimers first Neil Gaiman has identified this as his most autobiographical work, so depending on how you take this, that might seem like a pretty outlandish claim. If you're familiar with Gaiman, it probably becomes much less outlandish. And the second disclaimer, synopses are by design reductive, with this book it's going to be extreme. Yes, it's just another way of saying you should really read this book before continuing, but here goes anyway. An unnamed middle-aged man returns to his childhood town to attend a funeral. With some time to kill, he goes for a drive and inadvertently finds himself at the location of his childhood home. He is drawn down the country lane, away from where he's supposed to be. The further he drives, the more the road matches his memory, and with unexpected surprise, he reaches the farmhouse at the end of the lane. Almost in a trance, he parks, exits the car, and walks to the door of the house. When he knocks, the unlatched door opens, and he enters, calling out to see if anyone is home.
0: Are we doing a synopsis, or are you actually telling the story line by line? <laughs> I
3: like to give a lot at the start, and then as we go through, I'll ease off, so I'm not going to give the story away in this synopsis, which is probably, by definition, not accurate, but
0: too bad, so sad. <laughs> I just wasn't sure whether to make myself a cup of tea or something. <laughs> it might be an idea. Parabolic synopsis, <laughs> I <hope. laughs> I'm just
3: retelling the story from my own perspective. A familiar elderly woman greets him, recognising him despite his advancing age. He initially believes her to be old Mrs Hempstock, grandmother to his childhood friend Letty, but then corrects himself thinking she's far too young because so many years have passed. As they talk, a jumble of memories come back to him and he asks for directions to the duck pond on the farm. He barely needs them as his memories continue to return. When he arrives, he sits at a bench and remembers that Letty called the pond an ocean and from there a flood of memories hit. We're cast back to his seventh birthday party and are introduced to his family, his mum and dad and his little sister. His birthday present is a black kitten that he calls Fluffy, and quickly he grows to love it. Sadly, a month later his cat is run over and killed by a taxi, bringing an opal mining lodger to their house. The lodger was a necessity when their family had money problems. It was money problems again that put an end to the opal miners' time in the house his deceased body found in the back of his father's mini, an apparent suicide. From here, things take a turn to the fantastic, when he meets the three hempstocks. Grandmother, her daughter Ginny, and her 11-year-old granddaughter, Letty. He accompanies Letty on a trip to the outreaches of their property, where they encounter a supernatural being that Gran would call a flea. And when the boy lets go of Letty's hand for a moment, he unwittingly becomes a wormhole for the flea to enter our world from its own. The flea manifests itself as a new lodger at the boy's home in the form of an attractive young woman, Ursula Monkton. The boy sees through her, literally at one point, but the rest of his family are enamored. Ursula is horrible to him, and he escapes to enlist the help of Letty to get rid of her once and for all. The fleas themselves aren't particularly worrying for the hempstocks. It's the varmints that the fleas attract that are of concern. There you go. Shall I wake you guys up? <laughs> <laughs>
1: That was good. Einfach super und fantastisch. Danke, Keith.
3: <laughs> no problems. I'm sure we'll give away the rest of the tale as we go because that sets us up for hopefully interesting discussion.
1: Ah, oh, yeah. Ursula is really evil, though. I think he sort of glossed over that a little bit. She wasn't just nasty to him. She was everywhere at once. Like he wasn't allowed to even leave the property, and if he tried to, she would appear from inside the house. At the gate at the end of the driveway instantly And she was like an omnipresent evil spirit That was posing as a human And seducing her father And
2: Is she really that evil Or is she just like a figment of his imagination A woman who was having an affair with his father So he's concocted these horrible, horrendous memories of her
3: mm. uh. That's an interesting thread That I'm sure we'll unravel a bit more later hmm. Hmm. I'll happily unravel it with you, (laughs) Bree.
2: That's probably the only thread I've got on that one. All right. I know I'm going first on what I think of it.
1: Before we get into the book and we have a chance to complain like ninnies, Patrick, (laughs) why did you set us sailing across the ocean?
0: Well, I've liked Neil Gaiman for quite a while, and I think maybe originally on your recommendation, Laurie, when we lived together back in days of yore, and he's been a kind of favorite of mine ever since and i love his books that are aimed at a slightly older audience american gods is one of my favorite books it's absolutely incredible and it is just a almost a primal force of writing everything that he says is beautiful and heart-wrenching in equal measure and that book is just a perfect distillation of everything that is Neil Gaiman I think in some ways Ocean at the End of the Lane is similar it's kind of American God's light in some ways it's it's shorter it's a little bit more focused perhaps and maybe some more of those autobiographical elements like Keith was talking about start to creep in a little bit I saw shortly before Ocean at the End of the Lane was released in 2013, I saw Neil Gaiman in Sydney and went to a reading that he did uh, prior to the, the book being released. And so I saw him reading out the chapter that I just began then, and it was one of the most exceptional experiences of my life because he's so engaging and so obviously invested in writing as an expression of... Something far beyond What I think a lot of the authors that we Read have It's it's more than superficial For him and you can really feel that in the writing And so I was excited to Throw out something by Gaiman I wasn't sure which I would run with But uh, I settled on The Ocean at the End of the Lane Because of that experience that I'd had And I'll be interested to know What you guys think of it as well Bree, do you have some Thoughts?
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm (laughs) One hopes
2: (laughs) Yeah, I have some thoughts and I wish I wasn't That's good, what about you, Laurie? (laughs) (laughs) I wish that I wasn't first tonight
0: Do you feel like you're in the firing line or?
2: No, I feel like I could be convinced through discussion of this book to like it a little more Okay For me, this one fell flat Now, to be open and honest, I was asked by Laurie to read Stardust, which I absolutely loved, devoured it, thought it was magical and whimsical and fun and a little bit scary. But for me, it was a fantastic take on a fairy tale, I guess. So I was quite keen to see how, how another one would stand up. And I just felt like it fell a bit flat. I didn't find Ursula Monkton particularly oh, she was scary like it was creepy but I sort of felt like it was more the young child in this boy who may have observed something horrible with his father who was then concocting all of these additional scenarios any kind of small thing as a child becomes huge you fall over you've got a speck of blood and it's the end of the world so that kept running through my mind and Not that that's a bad thing. I really liked the way I felt like his imagination ran away with him with images of this duck pond being an ocean and things like that. But I actually almost hoped for more. I hoped that it would go into more detail about this supposed other world that the hemp stocks originally came from. I was hoping, I suppose, a little bit like Stardust, to see what's on the other side of the wall or to see what's on the other side of the duck pond, I guess, so to speak. And I just felt a little disappointed. I was annoyed that there were so many unanswered questions throughout. I had to presume that he was at the funeral of his father because there was such a momentous moment in the book where his father effectively apparently tries to drown him in the bathtub upon Ursula's orders. Did that actually happen? Is it the memory of a small boy being in a lot of trouble and his father dumping him in the bathtub and turning on the cold shower to get him to calm down. That sort of thing kept running through my mind, this scepticism, and it possibly took away a little bit of the magic for me.
3: Is that you drawing a line in the sand and saying, there is no fantasy in this book outside of this child's imagination?
2: No, I think uh, maybe listening to you three, I'll be convinced a little bit more the other way. It made more sense to me, Keith, when you said that this was effectively autobiographical for Neil Gaiman. That, to me, supported the way that I felt throughout the entire book. I also felt it went a bit long. I know it's only 100 and something pages, but I felt like it should have been shorter. It seemed to drag out with the Ursula Monkton stuff that I just didn't care about that much. Also, what was with the cats? Like, that was just a bit odd. (laughs) You're talking about him harvesting the cats from the ground. Yeah, it was just weird.
1: Mm. He, He sees something fluffy coming out of the ground at one point and pulls it up and it turns out to be a kitten, which then becomes his friend for a little while.
2: But it sort of didn't come to anything more than that. It was just his friend for a little while. It didn't really add anything to the story. It didn't really add anything to him as opposed to something to be friendly to. I mean, he was clearly a lonely boy. Nobody came to his seventh birthday. Maybe he was just attaching to anything alive that came along.
0: The cat cropped up repeatedly throughout the story and was a marker of kind of the magical nature of the story at Mm. the end of the book as well.
2: I thought maybe it was just something comforting for him. I wondered whether it was a real cat in his imagination, whereas in real life it was just a stuffed cat that he kept on his bed or something. I just... I was really sceptical and I really didn't want to be. I was hoping for more. Having read Stardust and having enjoyed it, I was hoping to be convinced that it was more magical.
3: There was an implication with the cat that it was embodied by Letty at a point.
2: Oh, I missed that. Maybe I should have read it a second time. That was the other thing that went through my mind. I wondered whether if I had read it a second time, whether I would have appreciated parts of it more. There were certainly some things that I really liked, particularly some of the musings on what it is to be a child, what it is to be an adult. And at one point they talk about why don't adults read things about Narnia and fairies and secret gardens. I don't know if it was secret gardens, (laughs) smugglers or something. You know, that spoke very strongly to me because – Having been encouraged in the last year and a half to read a lot of fantasy, I sort of think, yeah, why don't we read more of that stuff? And guess what? That particular passage just made me smile and think of the three of you because maybe not you so much, Keith, but um, certainly (laughs) certainly (laughs) smile. (laughs) But it certainly made me smile and be, well, I guess, grateful for this experience to be able to go back and read some of those fantastic books of youth and of those fantastic books of the youth today all four of us would have been lost in books as children and there's a comment made about that as well there were a lot of things that I related to and I'm just not convinced about whether it's whimsy whether it's real life whether it's fairy tale and which direction I kind of wanted it to go in
3: Hmm. but you're really thinking a lot about this book
2: maybe you'll convince me the other way around so we'll see
0: I don't necessarily know that it matters one way or the other because the themes of the book are the themes. It's not necessarily about magic or fairy tale worlds, really. It's about money and it's about sex and it's about the loss of kind of childhood innocence and what is it that constitutes being a child versus being an adult. It's about that kind of fear of adults and the grown world when you're a kid and wondering what it is that's so different in that transition from youth to adulthood.
3: And then wondering that again as an adult with a different
0: perspective. Yeah.
2: And then immediately forgetting it all. Yeah,
0: and immediately mm-hmm. forgetting it all. But I certainly don't think there's any indication that the story, as it's told in the book, from from a textual perspective, I don't think there's any indication whatsoever that it's not real, that it, it isn't stuff that actually happened to him. Like
1: I was surprised when Bree was mentioning that because I had no inkling whatsoever that it was like the musings of a boy versus something that was actually happening. In fact, I thought the stocks they weren't shy about sharing exactly what was going on in the world, like what this creature was and what it was doing. They were trying their best to explain without dumbing it down for him, but he still struggled with that because it was so fantastical and so different.
2: Mm. I thought that was a bit of a cop-out, like If it was something so fantastical, then they should have a way to be able to demonstrate that rather than strips of fabric running around.
0: I like it. I like the uncertainty and the kind of vagueness about it. It's it's really this kind of raw, primal energy that underlies the world, and it's just too big for anybody to really grasp or to understand or to know. And Letty Hempstock even talks about that a, a little bit at a certain point when our narrator asks her, like, "Does she know everything? Is she omniscient, omnipotent?" And and she says, "No, you can't have that and be here at the same time." These Whatever they are, these natural forces that are the Hempstocks had to trade that away, in essence, to be part of the kind of mortal world that we're in. And there are books like the book of Lost Things brings to mind this question written into the text about the veracity of the narrative as told by the narrator. You're not quite sure how the thoughts and dreams and interpretations of the narrator are syncing up with the fantastic narrative that's being told. And I think in that book, there's quite a clear case that everything that he's presenting is a retelling bastardization of fairy tales that he's heard before. Whereas in this book, there was no real author's clue that that was the case in any way at all. I think it's sort of very much shining your own light onto the story and And drawing those kinds of interpretations from it. As far as the autobiographical elements, I think they kind of shine through in a thematic kind of sense, rather than a word by word, this is what happened to Neil Gaiman. And certainly the description of the adult at the beginning, going to a funeral, talking about his life, talking about his family. I hadn't read that Gaiman had considered it an autobiographical text. But when I read those first few pages this time around, I was reading that and going, this is just describing... Neil Gaiman, like, a few years before marrying Amanda Palmer. It's quite distinctly who he is as a, an adult. And I don't think that takes away from the, the fantasy or the magic. And certainly I'm not saying that they aren't metaphorical, the things that are being expressed, because they 100% are. The whole book, in a lot of ways, is metaphorical for adult life and that kind of loss of magic that I've mentioned in things like the Book of Lost Things, I suppose. But uh, I don't know that's necessarily indicative of, in the world of the book, it being fantasy.
3: I did feel the idea that some people may perceive it that way. I didn't myself, a lot like yourself, and probably Laurie as well from what he said. But I did see why someone could have the opinion that Bree has.
0: What did you think, Laurie, of that question, I suppose, and of the book more generally?
1: I mentioned this briefly before. I really didn't have that interpretation at all. For me, it was. Uh, something has crept into this world And it's something that's difficult to understand It's up to our unnamed protagonist And the hemstocks to deal with it In the best way that they can together And the hemstocks were, to me Just these almost gods Very old, deep magic type creatures That were kind and benevolent And they were the only thing that stood between The protagonist and this dark thing That's been unleashed upon him So it was all fantasy for me As far as the book is concerned. look, Patrick, I expect you'll believe I'll be gushing, but I do have a major criticism that I have to level at Gaiman. It's been bugging me since I first read this book in 2013. And that is with a work this outstanding, this first class, that I've been waiting three
0: years and
1: counting And we've yet to get another full-length work for him, it's torture Yeah,
0: that's a bummer
1: What's worse is that I'm sceptical about the next book Because it's supposedly a retelling of tales from North Mythology uh, North...
0: Norse Mythology
1: (laughs) That is actually quite difficult to say (laughs) Norse Mythology Norse Mythology Because I'm not sure there'll be enough of his meat in the broth. I guess we'll see. I mean, I have seen him do interpretations of... A fairy tale before there was the Snow Glass Apples, which is available as a audio play or an audio brief audio book, which was just fantastic. Like one of the best things I've ever listened to, whether it be podcasts or audio plays or whatever, it was just incredible. So his spin on a, um, a well-known classic fairy tale um, was very well done. So if he does a similar thing to Norse myths, then there's potential
0: there for great things. I'll be interested to see what the actual format ends up being If it is just sort of several short stories or what the case may be Because most of his books really are a kind of adaptation of traditional folklore And traditional mythology and and the like
1: It's true, yeah So the prose in The Ocean was just excellent in my opinion Every sentence, each turn of phrase seemed razor sharp and really well polished to me His ability to evoke the sense of timeless, motherly, old magic in the hemstocks was just sublime, and the selfish, thoughtless, sensual evil of Ursula rang with the dread and clarity of a death knell. It was just exquisite. I loved it. Some really horrible things happened to the lead character, but I guess horrible things happened to us all, including Neil Gaiman, considering some of this is autobiographical. But his ability to twist... Just the barest amount of fantasy into a compelling and nail-biting thriller that seemed, I don't know, when I was reading it seemed both fresh but also classic, like it just had that real classic timeless sense to it. And I think that's Neil Gaiman's magic and I hope there's much more of it to come in his time. What about you, Keith? Same notes?
3: Yeah, similar. So I'll just touch on the autobiographical theme. It is noted as being autobiographical in elements of it, but I think he was more referring to the setting rather than what happens. So... I heard him talking and he mentioned that the autobiographical elements are more so fleshing out the details to make the world real and this is the lane that he lived on as a child. So those elements are the autobiographical ones and you would hope the dad attempting to drown you are not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'd be very surprised if the birthday party wasn't actually a real thing.
3: Yeah, well that was the chapter that he chose to read at that, so I wonder whether there is a personal connection there, and this boy is someone who's fond of books, which is something you can very much imagine someone like Gaiman being as a child, and he wasn't really worried about the fact that no one turned up, because he, even at the grand age of seven, acquainted these as not his friends, they were just people he went to school with, so he wasn't worried about no one turning up, as
0: he points out, he got a Batman
3: figure out of it, so... (laughs)
0: Great. <laughs> for me I kind of felt like the adult in a lot of ways was Neil Like Neil writing the book was that book-ending narrator And that the childhood sort of in the interim was his reflections on youth And that sort of thing I suppose And the unsureness
1: of whether the life that he had lived was a good one Yeah, yeah. Like whether the things he's done has mattered And
0: Yeah for me that's where I felt like that connection Where I felt like I'm reading autobiography almost In those kinds of fears and insecurities Mm. And the middle 90% of the book may have been Entirely fiction But there was something very true About the bookends I felt.
3: Yeah I think you're right there and I'll go to The origins of this story When he wrote it initially it was basically a short story he was writing for his wife who's amanda palmer a musician she was in melbourne making an album so he was missing her and was writing this for her and it was originally intended to be a short story and from what he says she's not someone who's particularly keen on fantasy so he was kind of trying to write this fantasy for someone who doesn't really like fantasy so much so he was dialing it down if you like and something that she likes is feeling so he played that up and i haven't read a lot of neil gaiman but i would have thought there was feelings pervasive through his work, but from what he's saying here, and I think this is just playing up to the audience that he was talking to, here's another quote. She likes feelings. I don't normally do feelings because I'm male and English. A killer combination. <laughs> I don't buy that for a second.
0: You haven't read any of his other books if you think he doesn't do feelings. Yeah.
2: Like- That's going for a laugh.
1: <laughs> yeah. Even in Stardust, which is a bit light and a bit funny and a bit romantic There's certainly a twist of feelings at various times in the book So, Mm. yeah, I think he's underselling himself there
3: Yeah, definitely, it was playing to the room But he's had a focus as well on feelings in this book There's this really heavy moment where Letty's given up her life effectively for his Not that she dies, so to speak and Letty's mum basically says, Letty gave you this life back and you have to now grow up and try to be worth it, which is such a heavy thing to say to a seven-year-old. And that's obviously weighed on his mind because he's coming back as a middle-aged person still with the same questions about whether his life has been worth it. And it's touched on that he has children and he's had marriages, but he's still asking the question, has my life been worth it?
2: This isn't the first time that he's come back. You discover that he's come back, rediscovered it, gone away, come back, rediscovered, gone away. And I think that's kind of true of adults. The more you move through life, the more you think fondly of your childhood memories, the more you in some ways try to recapture your youth in different ways, whether that's reading more fantasy, whether that's going rafting, buying yourself a fast car, whatever it is. You're sort of trying to recapture that, maybe that freedom, that liberty, that carefree nature you associate with your childhood perhaps
3: yeah i like that when he starts the reminiscing which is the body of the book essentially it's told through the eyes of the child you don't really get the feeling of the adult because for me it was very much told through the eyes of the child through that middle section
0: oh yeah definitely
3: yeah so i really like that he did that effectively he wasn't an adult looking back on his childhood and seeing it through adult eyes he was very much so
0: seeing it as he saw it the first time round. There were a few sort of interjections of the adult here and there, but by and large it was written from the child's perspective.
3: Yeah, just a couple, like when he saw his dad with Ursula Monkton, he was wondering whether that was a catalyst for her leaving he's questioning his own beliefs. One thing I thought maybe it was missing a little of is questions, and Bree touched on this as well. A seven-year-old child is going to ask a lot of questions, and the Hempstocks weren't short on answers, but he just didn't ask a lot of questions, and that would have fleshed out the idea of this parallel world.
1: Like, at one point, they described the world as an ocean sort of sitting parallel to the universe – but you don't really want to go there because the place that we live is... I think they described it as icing on a cake, but the underneath of the cake was a very nasty stuff, which kind of explains why the fleas and the varmints that eat the fleas, why they're so vile. So, yes, you could have asked a lot more questions, but it might have been the case that you're better off not knowing... <laughs>
2: To me, that's almost, going back to my argument before, that's almost the boundaries of this kid's imagination. He can't imagine anything quite so maybe dark, maybe horrible, that that's why it doesn't go any further. His existence to this point has been fairly safe, fairly normal, fairly normal childhood. Then this horrible thing with the suicide happens and it's almost like that's been a trigger for him having this imaginary world created from what might be regular everyday events.
1: Mm. Even if it's not imaginary, though, even if there was this real magical world out there, it's one thing as a child to understand that there's a world outside your neighbourhood and how big and strange and sometimes terrible our own world is, to then try and imagine the universe and then underneath that universe being a a layer of writhing evil... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that would be tough stuff to consume as a child. I imagine. Yeah, the whole
3: world and that side of things, yes. But the smaller minutia is something that a child would focus on, I think, and that's my experience with children and my own memories of my own childhood, that you would focus on these minor things, whereas an adult you might be more willing to just buy the story. Mm,
2: exactly. As a
3: child, you want to know how it's constructed. I'm sure I've heard magicians talking about children being a very tough audience because they won't accept that there's magic. They'll need to know how it's actually happened. I would have liked a bit more of that element with our protagonist here, but it didn't weigh on me heavily, that. It's just something, thinking about it afterwards, I thought, oh, a child, would they really have been so willing to just accept these fantastical elements? But the main thing that I took away from this book is that it left me thinking it left me wondering and drawing connections and making my own interpretations of everything which is what you want from a book you don't want to finish it and just be done with it in that regard it's a complete success i did question you know is this just a child's imagination running wild brie went that way with her thoughts even interviews with neil afterwards he's talked about as far as we can tell these hemp stocks are, are pretty much immortal so that, as far as we can tell, is obviously a disclaimer is put in there So you, you can have your own interpretation But I'm going to go with Niels there This is a fantasy world, this is real It's not just imagined I really liked it Thanks, Pat
0: I'm glad you liked it I liked it as well uh, I probably don't have much more to say other than that uh, I think it did drag on a little bit too long, though, as Bree said in, in portions I thought there was some... For me, the issues with the pacing were when Ursula was... Kind of vanquished, and we had the crows kind of setting in to pick apart the scraps, and it started to delve into more of this magical kind of stuff. And I started to feel like uh, maybe it should have been tied up a little more neatly. Such a minor foible, really. I, I, I loved the book overall, and I loved the themes, and I loved that I. Continue to question it in the same way that you do, Keith The kinds of questions, I suppose, about what it means And what it means to be an adult And what is it that maybe we've lost that we once had And if it's possible to regain that The questions of kind of judging your life And the metric by which you can judge your life Are pretty powerful as well
2: I loved this conversation about the book
3: I'll continue on that thread, Pat. When he returns, he's told that what actually happened when the varmints attacked him and Letty came to his aid was that they had ripped his heart out. And Mm -hmm. that wasn't his memory of it, but that's what old Mrs. Hempstock told him had happened. Then there's the idea that throughout this, all his returns to the farmhouse are to see whether his heart is growing back and Letty's watching him and and seeing whether he's able to regrow his heart that he lost in this instance.
1: Yeah, it was an interesting element to the story. I wondered sort of whether the dissatisfaction with life and the reason that he questions so much is because he's actually missing the heart that was taken from
2: him. As a seven-year-old seeing such a horrendous thing As a suicide in a car, that's the kind of thing that can really change the direction I would have thought of your life. That would play on you as a seven-year-old forever.
0: Yeah, I think that's huge. I thought there were a lot of elements of that throughout the book. There was the suicide, there was the idea of infidelity, of the parents that is, the narrator's father cheating on his mother and the narrator witnessing that. There was kind of the cold relationship that he had with his parents and he mentioned that he wasn't really able to have a relationship with his father until he was in his 20s and so all throughout there's these things that are damaging really he's he's not a whole child and I think part of the kind of exploration of the novel is how does this stuff impact you as a child and how does it impact you growing into an adult
2: your imagination runs away with you
1: Well, not just that, but also I think, Patrick, that there are moments in your life, in your relationship with your parents that slowly chip away at the idea that they are almost like the hemstocks, these infallible gods. Yeah. At some point, you start to collect memories that influence and change the way you relate to your parents and how you see them and how you perceive them as people. You start to understand that they are people, not just these figures of these wonderful parents that As a child you had nothing but glowing images of They slowly start to decay over time And that's probably a natural process That's how you end up leaving the nest Because these feelings of pure, biased love Slowly decays over time And it's time to get out
3: (laughs) I don't think this seven-year-old has that for his parents
0: No, he doesn't I think that's one of the big things is In the absence of that what does that mean for him? What does that mean for him as an adult? He's essentially coming back to this place and he's alone. His marriage has failed. His children are grown themselves and their connection to him, we don't really know what it is, may or may not sort of be tenuous. So, is the life that he is living kind of traceable back to the cold childhood that he had in a lot of ways?
3: Yeah, maybe his his returns to the farmhouse are these milestone moments in his life. It may have been at the failure of his marriage that he'd returned previously. This time it's for the implied death of his father. And previously it may have been for the disconnect from his children as they grew into adulthood. Times when you sort of question your own existence and what your life means to the world.
0: There is that idea too that the kids or adults are just the same as kids and just as lost and just as confused and trying to look for something.
1: Makes me wonder if this is an element to the love letter to his wife that this book is supposed to be. That elements of his childhood were difficult and he felt lost as an adult and had failed marriages before or failed relationships before but his heart was growing back and the person at the other side of the ocean that he's waiting for is what will make him whole because she was away in Australia.
3: I think you've just eclipsed Gerald Durrell with the love letter.
0: <laughs> I like it how there's always a massive pause before anyone says his surname. They just want to make sure they get it exactly right. Oh, i it so badly
3: that I feel I, I owe him that. But I was going to say that, that moment where his cat is run over by this South African opal miner and he replaces it with this monster of a cat and the boy feels he can't mourn for his own cat and he can't even tell his parents that this cat isn't a suitable replacement, which it's just sad that that's his relationship with his parents at seven.
1: Mm. It's infuriating too. It's, I think everybody's probably had an instance like that in their childhood, not maybe where a pet has died, And and probably a bit more serious than your ice cream falling off the cone and you crying, and then your parents saying, You'll get (laughs) them, they'll buy you another one. But something like that, where it just sort of rings true enough to really strike a chord and sing out to you. No?
3: Yeah, no, definitely. It's that idea that an experience is authentic to one person only, and it's touched on very heavily in the book where it talks about no two memories of the same event are ever the same. Everyone sees things in their own way, and that's what this child struggles to connect with his parents, and there's there's no equality in their perception on the world. He's on his own and he knows it.
0: Hmm. Did any of you find that you were unreasonably angry with the narrator's father, despite the fact that, you know, presumably he's under the thrall of some kind of otherworldly spirit. How peed off he gets at his kid kind of embarrassing him, being truculent whilst he's trying to hit on mm. the yeah. the live-in nanny just drove me wild. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty disgraceful. <laughs> it makes me so angry.
1: How did you deal with that moment, Brie? The bit where the father starts throttling and then drowning his son.
2: Oh, I thought that was absolutely horrendous.
0: Because he wants to hit on the nanny. Yeah, yeah, correct.
2: And I I thought that was absolutely outrageous. What else can I say?
0: Mm. I found it very difficult, despite, you know, the spirit being banished towards the end of the book to <laughs> regain any sympathy for the father. I'm like... Just take him with you, like go back to the underworld or whatever the hell. No, and take I the- just
2: never had any sympathy for the father. I just thought that he was just a bit of an asshole.
0: Mm. Well, he was, he was.
2: But because of the way that I interpreted the story as well, he was an asshole, and then this kid has made him out to be even more of an asshole.
0: With an imaginary spirit Correct Guiding his hand For you there was no spirit at all So really he's just An an attempted murderer (laughs) He's just a horrible Horrible guy I did
2: wonder whether Like I said earlier I did wonder whether Some of the events Were made bigger Because of Being a child And being It's an imagination And that point That Keith made about Two memories Never being the same I mean, I've heard of parents who get so frustrated with their kids that they will turn on the cold tap in the shower, so...
3: <laughs> or pour a bowl of food over their head.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, you just, as parents, you, you do such a good job, like, 98% of the time that...
0: 98? <laughs> is that low? <laughs> if you drown the child on the other 2%, yeah.
2: <laughs> Whatever it is. No, it's not about drowning the kid, but I'm just saying that there are always things that you regret doing as a parent. Yes. And there are always things that you reflect on and you think, I should have done it this way, but it's too Mm -hmm. bloody late. So, you've got what you've got. And I'm not saying that I've put my (laughs) kid in the shower, but, you know, there are times when you yell and you think, I could have done something different there. And it's that kind of thing, but... Maybe his dad dumped him in the bath, turned on the cold tap for a couple of seconds, but he's made it out to be this huge thing Mm. because there were so many huge things going on in his world and he never felt that he could talk about them with anyone. And he couldn't tell his mum about the fact that his dad was having an affair and he couldn't express himself and his feelings over the cat. As a parent, you hope that you can make that, as Keith said, make it a comfortable place. For your kids to be able to tell you these things
0: I think I would find the book a little bit diminished By that interpretation as well But I just, I don't see it
2: I couldn't help it It was just the way I saw it I was hoping you guys would convince me more That it was whimsy and fantasy
0: We haven't done our job Well certainly not whimsy either But <laughs>
2: <laughs> I thought maybe you could talk me into Seeing it a little bit more magical
3: The darkness of Ursula Monkton would have been really muted on you because it's this idea that the monster was inside the family home and
2: has unmitigated
3: access to him and all of his family.
2: Yeah, well, the monster is in his home. She is his nanny, effectively, and yet she's also doing his father. So the monster is doing everything she can to keep the mother to one side, to focus on the father, to keep the kids quiet, to give money to the sister so that she keeps... And she's happy But the boy's obviously seen something that he shouldn't have In the father And she was a monster to him Because of what she was doing to his family unit
0: I like it more as an actual monster She is this impish sort of creature Who is preying on the things that people want, the things that people really desire. She's summoned into the world by this miner dying, wishing that he hadn't gambled all his friends' money away. And she starts doling out money to people. And she latches onto the father with his kind of lust and desire for sex and youth and beauty. And that commentary is really powerful i think these things that pop into the world with an eye to what is it that these people really want what drives people and it is shiny coins and things and you can choke on your coin for all the good it'll do you it's it's really intense and it's really nice i think when viewed through that prism
1: reminded me a little bit of the greed monster from spirited away for those of you that have seen it I have not. It's like this big creature that feeds on greed, so it keeps trying to give away gold, and if anyone takes it, well, they might get munched. (laughs) But yes, it's funny that Ursula was trying to give everybody what they wanted, but I guess maybe her inherent nature didn't end up well for most people. And she wasn't allowed... She couldn't make it go well for the protagonist. He was the doorway that she kept a little piece of herself inside so that if she ever needed to return back home, she could. She had to sort of trap him and couldn't allow him the benefit of her powers and couldn't let him go free. She had to keep a very close eye and basically imprison him. It was very unlucky for our protagonist because he was the one person that couldn't receive the benefits, even if the benefits were like cursed in some way.
3: I'm with you two there. That made it more powerful and the monster more powerful as well. Mm. Without that, I can see why Bree was a bit lukewarm on it.
0: On a slightly different note and a very brief one, does anyone else get so creeped out by the extraction of objects from the sole of the foot?
2: (laughs) That was gross. (laughs)
0: Just super gross. It was really
3: well described, though. I was really feeling that moment, and I was just thinking
1: of it just before you said that as well. Uh, I've got a sick fascination with some of that stuff sometimes
2: (laughs) (laughs) If if, if (laughs) you go to work with my sister one day She does this foot clinic thing and it just sounds divinely disgusting
0: Are you one of these people, Laurie, that just wants to watch videos online Of people having pimples popped and that kind of thing? (laughs) I have done
1: so in the past and have had that sick fascination, (laughs) but I've also seen someone remove a worm from their foot. I think there's a, what's it called? Is it like the Tootsie worm or something in, in one of the African nations that can actually go in the sole of your foot and you have to lure it out with dead meat?
2: Are you serious? Yeah, and you have to actually wind it out with a pencil or something. Lucky I've paid my Wikipedia subscription. I'm going to go and check that out.
1: (laughs) I think it's a donation. (laughs) Oh,
2: damn.
1: (laughs) I really enjoyed that scene, mainly because I've seen something similar in the past and it is a creepy and strange thing. But, yes, I was fascinated nonetheless. Is it time for scoring with Bree?
2: (laughs) That's been a while. (laughs) 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 <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm glad it's only taken How many episodes are we up to now?
2: 20-something? 20-something 30-something, I think oh, wow. It's
1: only taken 30-something episodes To tickle your fancy with no one brain <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think because I was caught out I didn't realise we were coming up so quickly
0: hmm. Also, it's a guinea worm, Laurie
1: Oh, guinea worm, okay I was close yes.
2: Alright, scoring with me This one, one star Nowhere, wear, never wear Two stars, a little bit wet like an ocean. Three stars, somewhat gritty, man. Sand. Four stars, pretty good omens. Five stars, sprinkling of stardust.
3: Mm. It's as
2: good as I could get today.
3: I'll go first here. It's a four for me, maybe a four and a half.
2: Interesting. Don't think we need to bother with the other two, do we? <laughs>
0: <laughs> we must i go for four as well, I think It wasn't quite perfection, but it was definitely getting there mm. What about you, Laurie?
1: Oh, five stars for me I really thought this is one of Neil Gaiman's best And I ache for more of his stuff
0: well, I do too <laughs> <laughs> At least we have the American Gods TV series that may or may not be amazing
1: That's true, there's potential
0: Ian McShane as Mr Wednesday oh, gives me yes. a little bit of hope What about you, Brie?
2: Uh, before having this lovely conversation And being forced to think about it in many different ways I was going for a two bit wet like an ocean But I've been pushed up to a somewhat gritty number three I enjoyed the conversation It was interesting to see it from a different perspective From the three of you I liked that it was autobiographical I think that sort of lends more to my argument I disagree <laughs> <laughs> This is my part, and so three. Shut your hole, Patrick. (laughs) And so three stars for me because it has forced me to think about it in a different way, so well done. Fantastic.
1: Oh, excellent. Well, well done, Patrick. Thank you for another excellent choice. I'm glad that this time you didn't pick one that was uh, five stars all round. It's good to get a bit of variety from you,
0: Pat. Yeah, I apologise. I won't do
1: that again. (laughs) (laughs) Next episode... A little while ago, one of our listeners popped up on Facebook. Hello, Shrishti! And recommended us some young adult fantasy. It happened to be a book that had been on my list for a long time, so we're giving it a whirl. It's Sabriel by Australian author Garth Nix. I, for one, am very excited. Until then, remember that wormy things in your heart can kill you, particularly if you're the family dog, so make sure they've had their heartworm tablets. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Leave <laughs> What an
0: out of place PSA <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well I'm thinking about childhood And a particular dog of mine that I love That died oh, from oh a So okay, get onto up. it kids Leave your nanny's bottom alone For heaven's sake <laughs> Harvest yourself a nice cat from the ground Because cats are where it's at And keep reading
0: I'm still seeking
1: That was good. Einfach super und fantastisch. Danke, Keith. Not was is das? Scheißenhausen. So <laughs> <laughs> <ist zu> lange. <laughs> it's recording time.